In early 1906, a group of Missoula attorneys opened a business called the Flathead Reservation Information Agency. If you were to go back to that time and find your way into the agency's offices on the second floor of the First National Bank building on the corner of Higgins and Front Street in Missoula, probably the most striking thing that you would notice would be the large floor-to-ceiling map of the Flathead Indian Reservation on the wall, divided into more than 40,000 multicolored squares each representing a 40-acre tract of land on the reservation. The FRIA was essentially like an old-school Zillow, set up to help eager white homesteaders find and claim the right lands on the reservation as soon as it opened. While Congressman Joe Dixon had passed the Flathead Allotment Bill in 1904, there was still a lot to do before the reservation would actually be open. The government had to survey and classify the land, conduct an official tribal enrollment, and then actually allot each tribal member their lands before selling off the surplus. The president of the information agency was a man named William Q. Ramft, who had spent the previous few years working as an attorney representing mixed-race tribal members in the official enrollment process, during which time he was known to case the saloons in town, offering to get people on the rolls for $1,000. After his enrollment work was done, Ramft put his newfound knowledge of the reservation to use for himself and opened the agency, leaning hard into the insider information branding. On their giant map, each 40-acre tract was color-coded according to its classification as mineral, timber, or agricultural land from the official survey. And as tribal members were doled out allotments, Ramped kept the map up to date, crossing off sections as they were allotted. The agency also kept a set of 40,000 index cards that corresponded to each square on the map and contained information about the topography, kind of soil, adaptability, amount of timber and tillable land, the nearest streams, markets, post office, schools, churches, and railroads, while also containing the government's classification of the tract and the price. Ramped and the FRIA also worked with a publication called the Western Homeseeker, a magazine that operated on the same floor in the FNB and published out of the Missoulian Press. Ramps wrote articles about the multitude of opportunities for farming and ranching on the reservation lands, and the FRIA took out large ads in the magazine that say in big, bold, underlined letters, Are you prepared? We are. We are prepared to prepare you for the opening of the Flathead Indian Reservation that is soon to occur. We are prepared to guide you, your every step, toward the acquiring by you of one of these immensely rich homesteads. If you have not exercised your homestead right, you cannot afford to neglect the opportunity of doing so at the time the Flathead Indian Reservation is opened. Think of it, an inland empire of virgin soil, rich as any in the United States, no hardships of any kind. This is the opportunity that is looking for you and the opportunity you have been seeking. 
If you are earnest, write us. If you are not earnest, don't. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Welcome back to Land Grab. We're going through the story of the allotment of the Flathead Indian Reservation in the early 20th century in western Montana. Last episode, we covered Congressman Joseph Dixon's maneuvering of his Flathead allotment bill through Congress and C.H. McLeod's orchestration of the Missoula Mercantile Enterprise, moving in to take over the mercantiles and build the first banks in many reservation communities, while ruthlessly taking over the burgeoning cattle industry that had been built up by tribal farmers. Although the act was passed in 1904, the reservation would not be opened until 1910, but those six years in between were far from idle, and that's what we're going to get into today, the interim years. As the tribes protest vehemently against the opening of the reservation, and the white community in Missoula jostles for the best, most profitable position, and the looming deadline of the opening hangs over everything. Last chapter looked at what was the closest thing to a specific on-the-ground plot among a select few in the mercantile operation to pass the Allotment Act under conditions that were most profitable to themselves. But I think it's important to make clear that this plot to open the reservation and profit off of it was something much bigger and more sinister than just McLeod Dixon, and the Merck hoovering up land and cattle. This allotment drive was a full, society-wide push from the entire white community in western Montana. I think the scene at the end of the last chapter about Joe Dixon's homecoming after passing the bill shows the full extent to which allotment enjoyed essentially the universal support of the community. And we're going to spend a lot of time this chapter showing how that support played out on the ground as nearly every facet of the white community totally aligns itself toward getting the flathead opened and making a buck off of it. That's also why we started this episode off with the FRIA story, because it gives you a really clear idea of how widespread this rush to profit off of the opening was and how blatant its motives were. Chapter 7, Making 
Checkers. As we said, the president of the FRIA was William Q. Ranft, a former attorney in the official tribal enrollment effort looking to capitalize on his insider knowledge. But the vice president of the company was a man named Thomas Marshall, who was the mercantile's main lawyer in Montana, and the FRIA operated out of the second floor of the First National Bank, where they held a credit line of $50,000. The First National Bank, of course, was also part of the mercantile enterprise. The FRIA also worked with the Western Homeseeker publication, whose offices were right next door, whose accounts were also at the First National Bank, and who published out of Joseph Dixon's Missoulian. In the Western Homeseeker, a huge advertisement for the big store, the Missoulian Mercantile, greeted readers on the first page. Inside, Ramped wrote articles espousing the agricultural possibilities on the reservation. Marshall wrote columns explaining the legal side of the allotment bill and the homesteading process. A UM professor named Morton J. Elrod wrote scientific travelogues about the plentiful rains and fertile soil that awaited white farmers, and the Reverend Father Lawrence Palladino wrote columns describing how the indigenous people on the reservation had been Christianized and needn't be feared by white settlers. In the magazine, they ran ads for the Northern Pacific that simply read, Uncle Sam will give you a home on the Flathead Reservation. Under the FRIA and Western Homeseeker auspices, the mercantile, the press, the legal community, the local bank, the university, and the church all came together in the name of selling flathead real estate. And it wasn't just this one enterprise. The cottage industry of information agencies and real estate offices began to spring up as soon as the bill was passed, and everyone was getting in on it. Even our old friend from the last episode, the famously corrupt Indian agent on the flathead, William Smead. In July 1904, just months after the bill was passed, the controversy from the Hubbard Cattle Company scheme we covered last chapter caught up with William Smead, and he was dismissed as Indian agent. But business continued unabated. McLeod wired Dixon and notified him of his new pick a man named Samuel Bellew, who was serving as the chairman of the Missoula County Republican Central Commission. Bellew had more discipline than Smead and avoided his pitfalls, keeping a laser focus on the task at hand, crossing the T's and dotting the I's of the allotment process. And while the tribes went through the excruciating chore of deciding on an official enrollment and choosing allotments that they steadfastly rejected, Smead set about the other half of the equation, whipping up a mass of eager settlers to flood in once the reservation was officially opened. As soon as he left his position on the reservation, Smead immediately moved into Missoula and set up his own land and real estate company, marketing his special expertise in the Flathead lands to prospective settlers. But none of this was unique to Missoula or Montana. Let me say a few words now about the railroad colonization program, because it was quite something. And much of it, General Allotment Act and Flathead Allotment Act included, was a direct consequence of decisions made far away and much higher up in the gilded towers and ornate mansions of eastern railroad barons. 
The biggest driving force in the gobbling up of reservations and the continued push to homestead was the desire to fill train cars. The great colonizer was James J. Hill, although the NP and the Milwaukee quickly got into it. And if there was anything that James J. Hill hated to see, it was an empty train of boxcars headed from west to east. And he is the father of what came to be called the Railroad Colonization Program. Hill, I might add, was really a very complex man. He was clearly a financier, but he was also a kind of a dreamer. He was an empire builder. He wasn't merely interested in building and maintaining a railroad and making money. He wanted to see some 8,000 farms where, at the present time, then, when he started his colonization program, there were only about 150 huge ranches. He was an amateur botanist. He hired two men in particular, two scientists, soil scientists, presumably soil scientists. One was Professor Thomas Shaw, educated in eastern Ontario. Notice the place, eastern Ontario. But a more influential man was a man by the name of Hardy Webster Campbell, who was really kind of a nut. That ornery voice there is, of course, our friend, K. Ross Toole. They wrote brochures. They started magazines, which were widely distributed throughout the Middle West, throughout the United States, and in Europe. They, they ran demonstration trains all over the United States with beautiful golden shocks of wheat and even watermelons. This is what can be grown on this land, and the land is free. All you have to do is move out here and take advantage of it. There is another factor involved in why people came, and that is that particularly in the Middle West, land prices were skyrocketing, farmland, so that it was very difficult for a farmer who wanted to expand to do so. He was therefore sorely tempted to move out here where there was nothing but space, start with 320 acres and build up a new farm. The railroad colonization plan was by far the most significant marketing campaign in the history of the West. From Missoula to Minnesota to Scandinavia, the Great Northern and the Northern Pacific pumped millions of dollars into ubiquitous propaganda that popularized a few basic concepts that farming in the West was the new gold rush, and anyone who was willing to work hard enough to till 160 acres would surely find fortune and independence waiting for them, and that farming the wilderness, taming the prairie, was the final necessary step in the noble journey of civilizing the West. Anyone with conviction, a work ethic, and desire could join this great tide of history and purchase everything they needed right through the railroad catalog. And the railroads made it extremely easy to get here. They had, for instance, what they called a one-way settler's fair, so that you could come from Minneapolis or St. Paul to Billings or to Bainville or to an, or Culbertson, any number of other Hanyaker towns for $12.50, one way, mind you. The pamphlets the railroads made had travelogues about the different regions along the lines where homestead lands 
were being made available, giving detailed information about the water table, soil quality, seasonal weather patterns, and irrigable potential of said lands. They had step-by-step instructions on how to plow the useless prairie grass and raise productive, profitable wheat, and lists of tools and supplies that every serious homesteader would need to get started, helpfully pointing out that all of these supplies could be purchased from railroad-associated businesses. They also would rent you a boxcar for $50. A boxcar had a stove in it. You could put as many families in it as you could jam into it, or livestock, pigs, sheep, cows, fencing material, or lumber. Anything you wanted to do with a boxcar. The pamphlets were always written in this direct, matter-of-fact-seeming manner, really trying to seem very populist and very serious, trying to convey that this is an honest-to-God opportunity for serious people. And they have the appearance of scientific rigor, they have lots of articles written by experts and dudes with lots of degrees. But most of what was in these advertisements was pseudoscience at best and nonsense at worst. They would talk about how you can grow watermelons along the High Line and in eastern Montana, and they resulted in a lot of extremely destructive farming practices spreading across the West. They were called soddies and nesters and plow jockeys. They raised hardy crops and sturdy children. They put the roots down deep because they were the ones who came not to rape the land nor rob it, but to make it rich and harvest the fruit of it, and to make it rich again. The railroads were doing everything they could to sell people on the vision, but the reality of homesteading was quite a bit different than the gauzy commercial version. He usually lived at least the first year in a shack built of green lumber, from 12 to 14 feet square or rectangular. The boards warped very quickly. They stuffed rags inside the cracks. They had one stove, one room, or if they had two rooms, the rooms were divided by a rope and a blanket. Uh, They put tar paper for insulation on the outside. Uh, Usually the tar paper was blown away in the wind. Everything warped, and the first winter was simply ghastly for most of these people. Starting about 1900, an enormous number of people flooded into eastern and central Montana. We have come to call them honyakers. We don't really know the origin of the word. Nesters, scissorbills, what have you. But what they were, of course, were homesteaders. They were filing on public domain. About 80,000 people in a very short time flooded onto this enormously delicate land and began to plow it up in 160 to 230 acre plots. This railroad-driven influx of single-family farmers into the West was feeding this frenzy of development in Montana, and it reached every corner of the state. The railroad companies created an insatiable demand for new homestead lands, and local entrepreneurs rushed to provide the supply. 
Throughout this interim period, while the reservation is being prepared for allotment, the feeling in the Missoula community is big opportunity and opportunism. But the feeling on the reservation was much more apocalyptic. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to go over this interim phase from the tribal perspective. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media, we're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back. In the last chapter, we talked about the steadfast resistance of the tribes to the allotment of their reservation in the lead-up to the passage of Dixon's bill. But after the Flathead Allotment Act was passed, tribal leaders were stuck in this really difficult position where they're being compelled to participate in this process that they were still vehemently resisting. The first two steps called for in the bill were to survey the reservation and to complete an official tribal enrollment. Both of these were very long processes that ran into their fair share of obstruction. During the initial survey, even, there were reports of people on the reservation chasing away surveyors and destroying their equipment. And the enrollment process played out over many months in a series of long, agonizing councils where tribal leaders voted on whether to adopt people from various other regional tribes like the Spokanes, Coeur d'Alene, and Nez Perce, who had all been placed on the Flathead Reservation over the years. A group of Camas Prairie Kalispell even refused to participate in the enrollment and were added to the rolls based on what others on the reservation knew of them. 
In the midst of all this, in early 1905, Charlot and his interpreter, Antoine Pascal, went to Washington, D.C. and met with Dixon, Senator Thomas Carter, and President Teddy Roosevelt to bring their protests against opening the reservation to the highest possible level. However, it seems when he got there, he was mostly paraded around Teddy Roosevelt's second-term inauguration and only allowed a short audience with the president, who was unresponsive to his concerns. Despite the opposition, work continued and the enrollment was completed in May 1905. The survey was done the next year. In January 1907, Charlot, who was getting too old to travel, sent another delegation to Washington to protest against the opening of the reservation. At the same time, another Salish leader, a man named Sam Resurrection, started sending a constant stream of letters and petitions with hundreds of signatures to the President, Interior Secretary, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Joe Dixon, and about everyone else who could maybe bring some influence to bear on the system. The Secretary of the Interior at the time was actually James Garfield Jr., whose father had forged the removal agreement with Charlotte in the Bitterroot 35 years before, in 1872. These contacts from Charlot and Resurrection actually resulted in Secretary Garfield visiting the reservation for the Arlie 4th of July powwow in 1907. But that visit, like Charlot's trip to Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration in 1905, seems like little more than a photo op. James Garfield Sr. and Henry Carrington had both promised that the Stevens Treaty ensured the Flathead Reservation would be left to the tribes forever when they were forcing the Salish from the Bitterroot. But now, the most direct response Charlot, Sam Resurrection, or any tribal leader got to their complaints about the looming allotment and the broken promises came in a letter from the Acting Commissioner of Indian Affairs at the time, a man named C.F. Larrabee, who wrote, When Governor Stevens made his treaty with the Flathead, Kootenai, and Upper Ponderay Indians on July 16, 1855, conditions were altogether different from what they are today. The lands that were given to you were of small value, and the settlers were few. Now, however, the people have increased in numbers, and they must have land in order to live and support their families. You and I must bow to the laws which Congress, in its wisdom, sees fit to enact. Larrabee cites the Lone Wolf decision and the passage of the Flathead Allotment Act, explaining that those laws overrule the tribal opposition to allotment. He ends his letter by attempting to convince the leaders that allotment will be good for their people, and they should just give in and support the process. I want you and your people to accept the new conditions which Congress, to further your interests, has established. And I would like you to aid me in this matter by getting all the Indians to see that the proposed change is necessary for their best interests, and that each Indian with his own farm and his own improvements, by adopting the white man's way of life, will be better off and happier. This is the time where the allotment and the total breaking up of tribal wealth, power, and sovereignty it was designed to bring really starts to feel like an inevitability on the ground. And this pervasive feeling of gloom seems to settle in as piece by piece, almost everything they had was stripped away. Around this time, the process of selecting and awarding allotments to enrolled tribal members was beginning under the leadership of a Kansas Army colonel 
named John K. Rankin. The Rankin Commission intentionally assigned tribal members the least valuable land and worked to spread the allotments across as much of the reservation as possible to break up and individualize the tribes and get rid of the communal land use open range system that had been so profitable for them. A process tribal members began to call making checkers after the checkerboard patterns of ownership that began to appear. The purpose of the General Land Allotment Act was to make us farmers, right? Well, it seems like these tribes here were doing a pretty good job of that before the reservation was ever allotted. What happened? The reservation was allotted, Indians were then forced not to use an open range system that they'd been using for decades. They were forced then to try to take their herds to the confines of their, reserva- of their allotment. That voice there is Dan Decker, a tribal member and lawyer who represented the CSKT and is speaking here in a presentation on the 100th anniversary of the Flathead allotment. Now, what I understand from the elders of my family was at the time of the allotment process, at least in my family tree, was the family had over 300 head of cattle and had nearly 300 head of horses. And that my great-grandfather took his horses to Canada to sell them, many of which were Appaloosa, which ties back into our Nesbier roots, because there wasn't a local market for them because the Missoula and Kalispell and local markets were so flooded with flathead livestock that they were virtually giving them away at the auction yards. And they had to sell them because they didn't have land for them. They didn't have, on 160 acres or 80 acres for your family member, given the technology of agriculture at the time, how are you going to raise that many cattle? You can't. You have to sell them. You can't range that many horses. You have to sell them. So tens of thousands of horses and cows got sold, flooded the market. The homesteaders that are homesteading the land are buying those reservation, that reservation livestock back and bringing them back on the reservation only on their homesteads. Even Michel Pablo had to find a buyer for his buffalo herd, agreeing to sell them to the Canadian government and beginning a years-long process of rounding them up. Joe Dixon was selected to rise up to U.S. Senator in 1907, and his first course of action once in office in 1908 was to pass an amendment to the Flathead Bill that provided funds for the construction of an irrigation system on the reservation. Since, Dixon claimed, the irrigation system would benefit the tribes, it was only right that the money to pay for it should come out of the sales of surplus lands that were supposed to go directly into a tribal trust. At first, the bill only allocated a portion of those sales to go toward the irrigation project, but after early Interior Department reports suggested the reservation could be quickly and cheaply irrigated, Dixon amended the bill to appropriate all funds from land sales toward the irrigation project. The irrigation project was intended to deliver more water to the best agricultural lands on the reservation, but since the Rankin Commission had allotted the least productive lands to the tribes, the system would not benefit their allotted lands, or even reach them in many cases. So the tribes were paying for an irrigation system that was going to almost exclusively benefit the incoming white settlers. 
tribal members also faced the constant menace of religious missionary boarding schools on and off the reservation. The Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay had dealt with missionaries since the arrival of Father DeSmet in the 1840s, but had not had permanent missionary schools until the late 1880s and early 1890s. So far, we've mainly talked about the economic side of assimilation policy, the breakup of land holdings, and the takeover of indigenous enterprises, but that was only half of it. The other crucial component of assimilation was cultural indoctrination, and this side of things manifested most clearly in these boarding schools. The express intent of the school program was to destroy indigenous culture entirely by indoctrinating children to reject their traditional heritage and embrace white American society. And the ethos behind this program was summarized in the infamous phrase, kill the Indian, save the man. In the Flathead, the Catholics had built boarding schools for girls and boys, there was a government-run school at Jocko Agency, and children were even sent to out-of-state schools, including the infamous Carlisle School in Pennsylvania, where children of the Camas Prairie Kalispell, who refused to participate in the enrollment, were sent. As children were brought to a school, they were forbidden from speaking their native languages or following traditional practices, and their hair would be cut. In most of these schools, the students were underfed and malnourished, and the living quarters for the children were in squalid conditions that spread fatal diseases like tuberculosis throughout the school. Uh, well, believe you me, that sure put a hardship on my uh, uh, schooling there because I did not know a word of English. It would be just like you going to China or Russia or somewhere and attending the school there and not knowing their language at all, you'd be completely lost. See, most of our schools were boarding schools then. There were very few day scholars uh, because day scholars would live at home and one of the main things is that they must learn to talk the English language. And if they're living at home, why, they're, they're talking Indian all the time. Those voices there are Larry Parker, a Salish and Nez Perce elder, and Ignatius Dumbeck, who was a missionary on the Flathead starting in the 1920s. They're speaking in interviews for Place of the Falling Waters. The children had, had very long days. They would get up very early in the morning, say five or six in the morning. I have about three hours of classwork, break for lunch, and then go and do work in the various trades. A lot of boarding schools were really run on the labor of children. And so children did cooking, they did cleaning, they did laundry, they did farming. So only a portion of their day was actually spent in an educational or academic setting. We also heard Henrietta Mann and Julie Kajun, indigenous educators, talking about the boarding schools for a Montana PBS documentary. There are stories of physical abuse, emotional violence, verbal violence, um, shaming. I think shaming was uh, an everyday practice and a, a steady diet for Indian children. 
um, to feel shame, not really for anything that you've done, but simply for who you are. Those schools were into completely reshaping the Indian child, culturally, spiritually, physically, and I guess even you can say environmentally. But they took on after, oh, I would say six months uh, or more, they would be orientated back to the white ways because the first ones that we had, it took time to get them uh, to uh, take on the white man's ways. But once they came in, well then, then when they were in school, they would help change the mentality of the students, of their playmates, one thing or another. These oppressive conditions at the schools were designed to break the children down and force them into the mold of the white American worker. But the methods that were employed to do this were devastating and traumatic to its victims. And in the 2000s, multiple class action lawsuits containing hundreds of accusers were filed against the Western Jesuits and the Diocese of Helena for physical and sexual abuses they were subjected to while attending these schools. Some of these cases have already awarded hundreds of millions of dollars, and more are still working their way through the legal system. In cases that are already public, the oldest documented accusation I can find goes all the way back to 1893. The cases also show that the Diocese of Helena would systematically relocate problematic priests and nuns who had been accused of misconduct in other parishes to reservation posts, where the scrutiny of their actions was much lower. Boarding schools in the U.S. ran until the mid-20th century, and in Canada until the 1990s. And you just can't overstate how much these decades and decades of trauma have devastated and continue to devastate generations of indigenous people. Things continued to get more dire. On October 19, 1908, a deputy game warden named Charles B. Payton murdered four members of a Ponderé hunting party in the Swan Valley by Ovando, before he was killed by one of the party in self-defense. The massacre was a traumatic event on the reservation and inflamed tensions with the state of Montana over tribal hunting rights. The tribes had been guaranteed the right to hunt unimpeded throughout their traditional lands in the Hellgate Treaty. As we know, the traditional lands used by the tribes encompass 22 million acres in the entirety of western Montana. But the West's game populations had plummeted to precarious lows after decades of reckless overhunting by white sportsmen. The state of Montana, however, blamed indigenous hunters and tried to confine them to hunt only on reservations, passing a law in 1903 that banned tribal members from carrying arms off reservation. But regardless of the hunting laws, no one in the Swan Valley that day deserved to be murdered and the massacre was devastating to the community. Facing the grim realities of the policy every day, tribal leaders still kept up their efforts to stop the allotment even in the face of such daunting opposition, namely Sam Resurrection. Sam is a remarkable character, and he apparently died as a young child before coming back to life at his wake 
and earning his name. Resurrection wrote dozens of letters and collected numerous petitions against allotment, and in late 1908, gathered funds together to make a trip to Washington to present his objections directly to the president. According to Resurrection's account, he arrived in Missoula to catch the train, but was thrown off course when he was taken into a saloon by Missoula police and filled with liquor before waking up in the morning in the Missoula jail, serving a 90-day sentence for public drunkenness. While it's true that Resurrection had his struggles with alcohol, many others on both sides of the reservation line did as well. Public drunkenness was not necessarily an uncommon thing in Missoula then or now. And people were seldom on the receiving end of such lengthy sentences. Finally released from jail, Resurrection made a journey to Helena to confront the governor over the proposed allotment in January 1909, And in March of that year, he even accosted Senator Dixon on the Missoula train platform, but he was rebuffed stiffly each time. In April, a presidential proclamation from William Taft announced that the reservation would be opened up in a year's time. On August 4th, the first applications for the choicest lands opened up and more than 80,000 were submitted. This initial offering was for the most valuable land on the reservation, and applicants were competing for the opportunity to get in first and purchase this land as something resembling a market rate. Whatever was left unsold would be included with the rest of the acreage that would be opened up for purchase at far below market value under the provisions of the Homestead Act once Taft's proclamation came into effect. The obvious bargain represented by the impending opening of the reservation persuaded most people to wait to purchase their lands as homesteads, and only 6,000 of those first 80,000 applications were selected, and out of those 6,000, only about 1,000 actually bothered to file to purchase the lands at competitive prices. That same month, August 1909, Sam Resurrection was riding the Northern Pacific back home to the reservation from Deer Lodge. According to his recollection, two white men boarded the train at Drummond and offered Resurrection money to buy liquor at the stop, which he did. The same process repeated at each pursuant stop until Resurrection was too drunk to defend himself, at which point the two men assaulted him and threw him off the train just outside of Bonner. Resurrection suffered a broken wrist and a severely fractured skull, and almost died from his injuries. But once again, he came back miraculously from the brink of death and recovered from his injuries. The newspaper reports from the time like to heavily suggest that Resurrection simply got drunk and fell off the train, but Sam himself always maintained his story that he had been thrown. In November 1909, lots went on sale at auction for the six town sites on their reservation, Arlie, Ravalli, Ronan, St. Ignatius, and the new town of Dixon. The breakup of the reservation had been inevitable since Dixon passed his bill back in 1904, Even though nearly every government official involved had been confronted directly, personally, repeatedly by tribal leaders and made clear that the tribes were staunchly opposed to allotment, 
representative democracy had to have its say. Indigenous people were still not considered citizens, but wards of the United States, and didn't have the right to vote. The sole constituency in Montana for Joe Dixon, Teddy Roosevelt, William Andrews Clark, James Garfield Jr., or anyone else involved in pushing through allotment was white men, and they were all fanatically supportive of opening up the reservation. So local politics worked its magic at the national level, and Uncle Sam was ready to swoop in and impose the American way of life upon the ignorant savages in the way that has become our classic style, excusing all our actions as charity, the bestowing of enlightenment on an unenlightened people. And by 1910, the checkerboard was drawn, all the tribal members had their places assigned, and there was nothing left to do but open the rest of the board up. We'll get to that after another break. Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference, and the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Welcome back to Land Grab. On the last part of the show today, we're going to look at the opening of the reservation and its immediate aftermath in the 1910s. The opening of the Flathead and influx of homesteaders onto the reservation lines up perfectly with the broader trend that saw a huge population influx of single-family farmers settling across Montana and all of the West. The homestead boom radically transformed Montana in an extremely short space of time, reorienting the state's economy, landscape, and politics in ways that linger to this day. We're going to start in January 1910, with the end of an era for the Salish people. Chief Charlo passed away in the early hours of January 10th, 1910, surrounded by his family in his house at Jocko Agency. After spending his entire life fighting with a rare dedication to protect his people and hold on to what remained of their way of life, his time had come to move on and pass the mantle to the next generation of leaders. He was buried at the church in Jocko Agency under the protective eye of the Mission Mountains. The Missoulian reported that hundreds of people from across the reservation and Missoula County came to pay their respects. After the burial, Charlo's tribe gathered at his home and ceremonially burned his earthly possessions 
singing funeral songs. We've talked about Charlo a lot so far, and I think it's worth it to take a minute and look back at what was just a really amazingly historic life. His grandfather, Three Eagles, was the chief who met Lewis and Clark in 1803, and he was a very small child in 1855 when his father, Victor, negotiated with Isaac Stevens on the Hellgate Treaty. Over his years as a leader, he had weathered the indignity of the Garfield forgery and the tensions of Chief Joseph's passage through the Bitterroot. He fought for 20 long years to remain in the valley his people had always remained in. And after the devastation of the starvation winters and the forced removal, he fought for another 20 years for rightful compensation for his people and for the integrity of the one place they had left. To think about the changes he witnessed and the battles he fought is just remarkable. His loss was significant, but the next generation of leaders continued the fight, including Charlotte's son, Martin, who was selected as the new chief. The reservation was finally opened in April 1910, and once the doors were thrown open, the fortunes of the white settlers who rushed in and the tribal members who were pushed out to the margins continued to be diametrically opposed. So in 1910, the reservation was open to homesteading. 3,000 lotteries were issued for homesteads of surplus reservation land. They came, they homesteaded. A second round in September of 1910 for another 3,000 homesteads. Because there still appeared to be good agricultural land left after the 6,000 lottery, the remaining surplus lands were thrown open for public sale. These three rounds of homesteading on the reservation caused the loss of over 400,000 acres of tribal land. Indigenous people had been forced onto the worst, least productive sections of land and spread out into a scattershot pattern all across the reservation. Confined to these tiny allotments, tribal members could no longer practice the communal farming and ranching practices that had been successful for decades, and they were forced to sell most of their cattle and horses when they ran out of room to graze them. Michel Pablo even completed his long-running buffalo roundup and shipped his herd off to Canada, only for the federal government to establish the National Bison Range right in the center of the reservation and import back in a sizable chunk of the herd, while locking indigenous people out of managing or even occupying the range. Since all of the best agricultural land went to white settlers, the tribes also received a little to no benefit from the irrigation system they were paying for, and many of them had built their own irrigation ditches years before the opening that were destroyed as the new ditches were dug. Surprising no one, all of the supplies to build the ditches were purchased wholesale from the mercantile. During the initial construction of the irrigation project, the materials used to build the ditches were purchased at Missoula Mercantile and Beckwith Mercantile in St. Ignatius. Joe Dixon, who produced the legislation to open the reservation, had an interest in the Missoula Mercantile. He also owned property on the Flathead Reservation. That's some more tape from Place of the Falling Waters. Speaking there is Teresa Wall McDonald, who has served in a number of capacities for the CSKT over the years, specializing in water issues. 
Then, in 1910, Senator Dixon passed a new amendment that allowed tribal members to sell 60 acres of their allotments, three quarters of their land. The amendment seems almost tailor-made to allow the mercantiles on the reservation to just hoover up indigenous land, because they could now induce indebted tribal members to sign over the title to three-quarters of their land in order to pay off the credit they had amassed with the mercantile. It was like a comedy of errors because Beckwith ended up acquiring many of the Indian allotments for an $80 debt at the store. In addition, they acquired allotments through foreclosure where tribal members owed the irrigation project for water delivered. Amendments came along allowing Indians to mortgage essentially their property. But there was pressure to do that from the big names of Sear, Beckwith, Sterling, the Missoula Mercantile, part of the founding of it, it was a real estate business, selling land on the reservation. These mercantiles would grant credit to Indian people. The Indian agent would grant a mortgage on their allotments. The mercantiles would foreclose, the Indians would lose their allotments. That's Dan Decker again, talking through how this mercantile foreclosure plan worked. If you remember last episode, Joe Dixon had tried to write a provision giving traders first preference rights on surplus land sales once the reservation opened. While he was ultimately unsuccessful in that pursuit, this amendment was an extremely profitable alternative for the mercantile. This practice was so widespread that probably every family on the reservation had somebody fall victim to it in one way or another, including our friend, Steve Lozar. My dad's side of the family here at uh, Salish Kootenai on the Flathead Reservation, virtually everybody lost their allotments. And some of them were scurrilous, nasty things that happened to them. One of my aunts lost her allotment to, as did many, many, and I've worked on lots of them, many, many... um, Uh, allotments that were lost to the mercantiles that came in. My aunt lost her her, uh, 360 acres for um, $8.40 of charged groceries. She had no concept of charging. And that's my great aunt, but I say my auntie. The government also began building a tunnel for a future power plant site on the Flathead River Falls, a place sacred to the tribes. We'll talk all about that in a future chapter. White settlers, on the other hand, were given choice lands at discount rates and a free irrigation system. In 1911, a further round of allotments was made along the southern shore and islands of the lake, designating the most aesthetic lakeside plots for villa sites to be sold off to wealthy whites at auction. But intentionally didn't get into because it's a whole day conversation of itself is on this reservation we own we being the confederated tribes own the south half of flathead lake literally the south half of the lake we own it we've had to litigate time and time again to prove we own it we own that lake the beds and banks of that lake belongs to us when I drive up to Polson and look out on that lake, I'm proud to say that. 
But the United States did another thing. They recognized the beauty of that lake too. So in addition to the Flathead Allotment Act, we have the Flathead Villa Sites Act, where the government essentially auctioned off five and 10 acre tracts of land on the shoreline of the lake. So when you wonder why all of those non-Indian people live on the beautiful south half of Flathead Lake and hardly any Indians do, that's why. A few Indians got allotments along the lake, but not very many. And those other lands along the lake, why, they were surplus. So let's, but the government recognized the value of it, and that's why they created the Flathead Villicides Act. Thousands of acres along the lake were lost in that process. The trend continued throughout the 1910s, and as the homestead boom flourished and settlers poured into Montana, their heads filled with gauzy ideas from railroad and real estate propaganda. And while the extremely harsh realities of homesteading that confronted new settlers as they arrived ran directly in the face of that propaganda, those who stuck with it saw enough promise in what they were doing to believe that the whole idea, in general, was going just as planned. starting in about 1900 and extending until 1918. It, it rained at the right time, and when it rains at the right time, when you get sufficient moisture, moisture, you can raise superb wheat, as many of you know, over there, high protein, superb wheat. So first of all, the wet period begins about 1900. Then there was the fact that World War I started in 1914, and the price of wheat begins to skyrocket. It's approaching, as of 1909, $3.50 per bushel. The United States government is urging everybody and his brother, plant more wheat, plant more wheat, and they did. I'm happy as a clam on the land of Uncle Sam In the little old side shanty on my claim As the U.S. entered World War I, wheat, copper, and timber prices skyrocketed and the homestead boom seemed like it was never going to bust. More and more white farmers swarmed into Montana, reclaiming more and more acres of natural prairie grass for agriculture and creating a newly important political coalition in the state. Where Montana politicians had previously only had to concern themselves with the needs of the mining industry, now the needs of the single-family farmer had a significant weight. And money flowed out of tribal control and into the mercantile operation, who extended their tentacles throughout the newly opened reservation, taking over and building stores and banks in the towns they developed and grew. An enormous number of banks spread up. We had no bank banking regulations in Montana to speak of then at all. If you had any money, you could start a bank. Even if you didn't have money, you could start a bank. So banks are piling up all over the place. What did they take as security? Well, first of all, they took land the land on which you'd filed or the land that you had bought with their money. Was it a good 
collateral, piece of collateral? Well, it seemed to be because the price of land was rising very, very steadily. Or they took a lien on next year's crop. Now, most of these bankers had never been in the banking business before. They didn't know anything about security. They didn't know anything about collateral. They didn't know anything about reserves. It's a, it's a really a shocking kind of a thing. It looks good, however. Let's take the year 1910. Farmland in Montana was appraised in 1910 at $250 million. But in 1920, even after the exodus has taken place, it was appraised at $750 million. What happened to its real value, I'll get around to in a, mo in a moment. In 1915, the government instituted a new policy in which certain tribal allotees could be declared competent, meaning their allotments were taken out of trust and suddenly subject to taxes and fees imposed on other landowners. Many quote-unquote competent allotees ended up getting foreclosed upon through no fault of their own and losing their lands. There's one of our tribal members who was off at World War I. There was an amendment to the Flathead Allotment Act that said if the Indian agent essentially determined an individual Indian to be competent, his land could go from trust status to fee status, meaning the county could tax it because he was competent or she was competent. And of course, Indian people who never had an own practice of ownership of land to begin with, then briefly within a 10-year period, they were mortgaging their property, or in the case of this tribal member who was off fighting World War I, while he was gone, he got a letters, they were going to put his land into fee status. He came back, he hired a lawyer who said, no, I don't want my land in fee status, I want it kept in trust status. And the Indian agent said, well, our determination that you're competent to have it in fee must be true because you hired a lawyer to defend you, therefore you are competent. Therefore, your land will go to fee. So he goes back to World War I, and in the couple of years that he was gone, his land ended up getting sold under tax foreclosure. So he's giving his life for his country. He's tied to defend his property. The Indian agent says, you're competent because you hired a lawyer. So remember that. The initial parameters of the Allotment Act called for tribal allotees to receive their lands in trust for 25 years. That meant that they couldn't buy or sell it and wouldn't have to pay any taxes on it for that time. The ostensible reason for that was to encourage the tribes to stay and work the farms, thinking the 25-year trust would give farmers the time to learn how to build up a profitable farm or ranch before being forced out into the open marketplace. But in reality, that pesky trust just served to slow down the mercantiles, banks, and other businesses that were sucking up flathead lands as fast as they could. So now, in 1915, just five years after allotments have been assigned, tribal members can sell or be swindled out of three quarters of their allotment and have the last quarter repossessed if they fail to pay the taxes that were supposed to still be 20 years off. And when allotment came, suddenly, 
suddenly we had between 60 and 360 acres and we're told to be farmers. And if one were to look at allotment and see the pieces of ground that the tribal people inherited or were assigned, we were assigned horrible land in this fertile valley. And for us, what was left was um, we were allotted these small pieces of land. They instantly became taxable. We had no concept of taxing. We had no concept of individual land ownership, none. And we've always held this place as stewards in common. And so suddenly, within a day, we have 360 acres or 60 acres of individual taxed land. I mean, that's, that's sinful. It's, it's a horrible thing. Within two years of uh, the allotment being enacted, within a two-year period, we own two, individually own, two of every 10 acres. We lost it. We lost it all. Uh, and um, that, that's a pitiful circumstance. It's one of the things that drives me when it comes to issues of land is how wrong, fundamentally wrong that was. As we've really tried to hammer home here, bringing the Indian into American capitalism was the sole purpose behind allotment and assimilation. To open up new markets and create new customers, employees, and renters. And in order to be made excusable, this bold-faced imperialism was spun as this great benevolent action. But what things actually looked like on the ground was the tribes being completely devastated, robbed of basically everything of value, and sucked up into the marketplace through the absolute bottom of the class hierarchy. And it is inarguable, I think, that this was the result of an intentional, self-fulfilling prophecy. The whole allotment and assimilation movement was based on the principle that Indians were underutilizing their land to an unacceptable degree. But as we've seen, that was never the case. And any time that they were left to their own devices in their native lands, they thrived. Through neglect, bigotry, and outright theft, the government, both local and federal, the Missoula business and political elite, the church, the press, and much of the general population did everything they could to enforce the conditions on the reservation that would justify its opening. And once it was open, the process continued. White people cut off every conceivable piece they could for themselves and the tribes had to fight to hold on to every scrap of what they had left. Allotment instituted levels of poverty that had never existed on the reservation before, and that was used as further evidence for the tribe's inability to take care of themselves, which was used to justify further white control over tribal matters and increased white acquisitions of land and resources. Now that we've done these two chapters looking specifically at the allotment of the Flathead, 
and gone over what the grim realities of this policy really are, both in the theory and intent of the legislation and in the devastating events on the ground on the reservation. I want to end this chapter with some quotes from a special feature that ran in the April 4th, 1909 edition of the Anaconda Standard, titled The Uplift of the Indian, A Practical Experiment, which appraised the success of assimilation policy under the then-Commissioner of Indian Affairs, a man named Francis Lupp. The standard feature really gasses up the achievements of Lupp as some sort of singularly successful individual. But what they call the LUP policy is really just the same assimilation policy that had been in effect since Ulysses S. Grant decided to end the Indian Wars. If you're a white American, a white Montanan, especially if you're someone like me whose first ancestors in the state came over on this homestead wave, I think it's really important to listen to these quotes and to think about the really dark reality that they convey. Think about the fact that we knew exactly what was going on, exactly how much indigenous people were suffering from these policies, and this is still how we talked about it and how we thought about it. This is still how we saw the cruelty we were imposing. Here are the quotes. A sociological experiment of far-reaching proportions and significance, probably the first of its kind in history, is being conducted by the United States government in the application of the LUP idea to the long vexatious Indian problem. It involves the making of full-fledged citizens, within a generation or less, out of the raw material of savages and the semi-civilized. The traditional policy of the government towards the Indian has been practically reversed, and the Indian is placed in the midst of that same struggle for food and the other necessaries of life that makes good white citizens. It is an experiment upon a vast scale, and it is working like a charm, because it is based upon sound common sense. It is the hard-headed, hard-hitting application of the philosophy of the hungry stomach, which has been the most potent civilizing factor in the history of the world. Cooped up on a reservation, given free rations and little incentive to labor, treated as a race alien in interests and ideals to those of the white man, robbed by the unscrupulous, deluded by unwise and impractical philanthropists, viewed as scarcely human, it is little wonder that at the beginning of this century the Indian was fast becoming a race of parasites and paupers, absorbing little more than the vices from the white man's civilization. To fit the Indian for complete American citizenship, to make of the pampered pauper a self-supporting, self-respecting member of the community, 
to wipe out the racial fetish and to give the Indian all the white man's privileges, rights, and responsibilities are the foundational principles of the LUP idea of solving the Indian problem. This means the abolition of free rations. It means the wiping out of the reservations and the allotment of Indian lands in severalty. It means the abolition of tribal relations and the practical education of the Indian in the work of making a living for himself and his family. It means the absorption of the Indian into the life of the community as he becomes a whiter man in all but color. And finally, it means the disappearance of the Indian problem itself. The hungry stomach as the most powerful civilizing factor might perhaps be taken as the cornerstone of Mr. Lupp's policy. It has proved marvelously successful in bringing the Indian within the scope of the economic regime. The cardinal economic law that if a man eat, he must first work is now the law for every able-bodied Indian. Under the regime of free rations, the Indian lived a pauperized, parasitical life. Under the regime of work, that teaches that labor and a full stomach are economic cause and effect, the Indian is winning back the typically proud self-respect and resourcefulness of character that was rapidly disappearing through the coddling of free rations. It is the fundamental feature of the LUP policy that if the Indian problem is to be solved by making the Indians citizens, they must be trained to responsibility in practically the same rough, stern methods by which the white man is trained. That is going to do it for this chapter. In the next episode, we're going to look at how this lopsided bonanza would come to a turbulent halt in 1919 when a generationally destructive drought swept through Montana and the homestead boom turned into a devastating homestead bust. How many people were involved here? It's very difficult to say, because you see, we only take the census every two years, ten years. In 1910, the real rush had not yet begun. By 1920, when the next census occurs, the exodus has already begun. So we simply can't count, we can't use the census. It's, it's essentially useless. But by piecing together the records in land offices throughout Montana, and by using other statistics where they're available. It is, a, it is a safe guess that a minimum of 80,000 people came into eastern and central Montana between 1900 and 1919. It is also safe to say that by 1923, 60,000 of them had left, had fled, had gone bankrupt.
And we're going to see one of the biggest multinational corporations in the world center Montana in its crosshairs and define its 20th century. The Standard Oil Company. Not the Standard Oil Company of Indiana, California, and so forth and so on. That's the consequence of the breaking up of the big Standard Oil Company according to the antitrust laws of the United States. But at this time, it is the Standard Oil Company, the largest trust in the world. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.